I'll be reading from Matthew 5, 27 to 37. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Thank you for reading today's passage, Madeline. Sex, marriage, and truth are beautiful. How is that for getting to the point? The truth is, we have a hard time talking about sexuality, marriage, and truth because we are so broken and confused in these three areas. For some who are watching, I know it is hard to listen to a message entitled Desire, Divorce, and Deceit because you have been deeply hurt by desire. That is, people lusting after you rather than seeing you. I know others who are watching have suffered through a lengthy divorce, the termination of what was to last a lifetime. You have suffered the pain of deceit. Your partner's willful betrayal of the trust you deposited in them. I have no desire to add to anyone's pain or stress today. Instead, my desire is to share what Jesus has to say. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. If we understand his words, we will find them to be gracious, loving, and true. His teaching is good, good for each one of us individually, good for our families, good for our society as a whole. Jesus has life and healing for all who come to him. 2,000 years separate us from Jesus' earthly life, but his brilliance transcends all these centuries. The concerns he speaks to in these verses, lust, uh, marital unfaithfulness and deceit, are as relevant today as they were in the first century, perhaps even more so. Why? He speaks to the heart of universal human dilemmas and provides timeless, supercultural guidance. Let's begin by looking at Jesus' context when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. In the crowds are scribes and Pharisees. Jesus mentions them in chapter 5, verse 20. The scribes were professional students and teachers of the Hebrew scriptures. They sought to clarify the meaning of the law and show people how to uh, apply it to their lives. Many scribes were also Pharisees. The Pharisees were a reformist movement within Judaism, devoted to the meticulous practice of the law. They had calculated that the law actually contained 613 commandments. They aspired to keeping them all. (laughs) But in doing this, they were trying to make the commandments more relaxed, attainable, and manageable. First, they restricted the application of the commandments. For example, they restricted 
the seventh commandment, to not commit adultery, to the physical act. By restricting adultery to the physical act, it was easy to be sexually pure. For Jesus, the commandment had to be interpreted and obeyed according to its intended and deeper meaning. He connected it to the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. So he says in chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Adultery was prohibited by God because it not only violated another person, single or married, but also broke the bonded marriage relationship. The one flesh union God intended to be exclusive and permanent. We'll talk about this a bit more in a minute. Jesus ties the seventh commandment to the tenth. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet or you shall not desire your neighbor's wife, it uses exactly the same verb to desire for as Jesus uses in chapter 5 verse 28. It already warned against these matters of the heart. Adultery begins in the heart, that is, in the mind, will, and emotions, at the center of one's being. When a man looks at a woman other than his wife with longing, desiring to have sexual relations with her, he has already rejected his wife and given his heart to another. Sins of the heart are as serious as physical acts of sinfulness. For this reason, avoiding the physical act of unfaithfulness is never enough. The physical is just the outward expression of what is in the heart. One must guard against the look and the imagination because flirting with another or looking at internet pornography denigrates the image of God in men and women and violates the marriage relationship. People are not to be objectified. They are divine image bearers to be honored. King David's infamous sin comes to mind. He desired Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, then committed adultery with her, then deceived Uriah her husband, and then had him killed. When he later confesses his sin in Psalm 51, he prays, Against you, you only have I sinned. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. But ultimately, he was sinning against God. How do we avoid these sins? Jesus makes a drastic statement in chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. What does he mean when he says one should tear out the right eye and cut off the right hand if they cause you to sin? In fact, he repeats it again in Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9, in the general context of temptations to sin. Is he encouraging self-mutilation? The most famous example of taking these verses literally is Origen of Alexandria, who made himself a eunuch in order to control his sexual temptation. If that is what Jesus meant, most men would be eunuchs 
or live without eyes and hands. With these two graphic examples, Jesus is illustrating the seriousness of lust. The right eye is one's best eye. The right hand is one's best hand. I actually find this interpretation a bit offensive because I'm left-handed. The eye is the medium through which one is tempted to lust. The hand, it represents physical actions resulting from lust. Heart adultery begins with eye adultery, which leads to physical adultery. Jesus obviously uses hyperbole, that is, deliberate exaggeration to emphasize the importance of remaining faithful to one's spouse. Cutting off or gouging out is a way of saying we must be radical in our dealings with sin. The alternative is hell. Hell is sin's reward. Now, these words are hard for us to hear because our society has normalized lust and adultery. In fact, those who speak against these natural inclinations are considered insensitive, naive, even inhumane. It is considered a sin to limit someone's sexual freedom. Truly, our ability to imagine things is a precious God-given gift. None of the world's art and little of man's noblest achievements would have been possible without imagination. But if our imagination is fed dirt by the eye it will be degraded. What feeds your imagination? What causes you to sin? This is a really important question. The language in Matthew 5 refers to the trigger of a trap that when touched causes the trap to close around an animal. Jesus is referring to those things that draw us, seduce us away from the beautiful way and entrap us. As I prepared this message, I remembered a conversation my mother had with me when I was 11 years of age. She asked me to read a book, Almost 12, which talked about human sexuality. Over a period of months, we had good, sometimes uncomfortable conversation, especially for her. I gave her full marks for trying to educate me. I had much to learn. Unfortunately, I also had much to unlearn because I had already incorporated many unhelpful thoughts and twisted notions I had learned on the schoolyard, mostly from boys a few years older than me. Eleven seemed to be a good age for sex education when I was young. Today, parents would do really well to begin the conversation in an age-appropriate manner with their children at age four or five. Men and women need to be taught to understand themselves as men and women and taught how to see one another as divine image bearers, people to be honored. As a young married man, I had to learn to discipline my eyes to avoid magazine racks, uh, certain literature, R-rated movies, some art exhibitions. I had to avoid listening to some songs. Now, did I walk through my teenage and adult years in absolute perfection? No, there are things I lament. But I did find that Jesus was gracious and present to help. Today, the big trap is internet pornography. The numbers are staggering. Pornography degrades men and women. It turns human beings created in the image of God into sex objects. Addiction to pornography 
paralyzes us spiritually. We open our hearts to the work of our spiritual enemies, the demonic. We feel unworthy to serve God and others. It is the great battleground in the life of the church today. If our hands take us to pornographic websites where our eyes feed on unnatural sexual stimulation, we must discipline our eyes and hands. Has your smartphone or laptop become a trap that leads you to sin? If so, put some controls on your devices. Join a men's or women's group to help deal with sexual brokenness. It is not shameful to receive help in this way. Rather, we are to support each other on this journey. Shame is actually a weapon of the enemy to keep us down, to isolate us. Conversation and support bring freedom. Sexual purity is much more important than keeping up with pop culture. It is necessary to avoid some experiences in order to truly live. What many in our culture of earth proclaim to be life and liberty is actually death and bondage. Do we want to live in the freedom God intended for us? Or do we want to walk in the bondage being sold as freedom? Do we want the way of heaven or the way of earth? Earlier in the sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are pure in heart see the image of God in others, not objects for exploitation. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Only those who hunger for Jesus and his beautiful way are fully satisfied. So allow Jesus to satisfy what culturally approved sexual practice will never satisfy. The scribes, and the Pharisees watered down the seventh commandment to make it manageable. They also bypassed God's design for marriage in order to accommodate their desires. For example, they widened the permission to divorce, given in Deuteronomy chapter 24. They widened it beyond the single ground of marital unfaithfulness to include a husband's every whim. So Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 31, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce was rampant in the ancient world of the Old Testament. Divorce and remarriage were also widely accepted and practiced In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had produced a detailed body of teaching making provisions for valid divorce certificates. It should be remembered that only men could divorce their wives in that day, not women, and this without a legal hearing. In Matthew chapter 19, some religious leaders engaged Jesus in a debate about divorce and remarriage. A husband could divorce his wife for spoiling a meal or because he had found someone else more attractive. Let's listen to the conversation. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus bases his teaching on creation and the institution of marriage, weaving together Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Jesus teaches that at its heart, marriage is a unique union between a man and a woman where they become one flesh in a lifelong bonded relationship. In marriage, God knits together. He does this himself. He knits together a man and a woman emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. The intimacy of the one flesh union demands two things, exclusivity and permanence. Now, this is a hotly contested issue in our Canadian society. Our society believes sexual activity to be the domain of two consenting persons, with or without love, committed or uncommitted, heterosexual or otherwise. We have made our emotional needs and physical desires paramount. We believe marriage is a a commitment you make to another person because of an, an intense emotional connection, but it is not necessarily permanent. Marriage can be lifelong or for a season, legalized or common law, same-sex or heterosexual, with one spouse or a succession of spouses. What matters are our emotional needs and physical desires, and these can change. Approximately 38% of all Canadian marriages end in divorce. While the divorce rate has been quite steady since the 1980s, there has been an increase in the divorce rate for newer marriages. At the national level, 21% of couples are cohabiting, In reality, the majority of marriages now begin with cohabitation. And studies demonstrate that this solution has the effect of undermining the ability of human beings to enjoy a permanent, lasting marriage commitment. Cohabitation actually makes things worse. Sam Alberry comments, Sexuality is a little like a post-it note. And the more that union is forged and then broken, the more our capacity for deep and abiding unity is diminished. So let's listen to divine wisdom. The Hebrew scriptures teach that marriage is designed to picture God's covenant relationship with his people. God, he's steadfast in his love and ever faithful toward his people. When God makes a covenant, He will never break it. God's people are therefore to to be faithful to God and their spouses. In Malachi chapter 2, the people of Israel wonder why God no longer hears their prayers or accepts their offerings of worship. We read in Malachi 2 verse 14, But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless though she is your companion in your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? 
godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God earnestly calls for, commands, pleads for faithfulness. Divorce breaks the union. It denigrates the image of God among his people. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does not accept the practice of easy divorce. From his perspective, God never mandated nor encouraged divorce, let alone divorce certificates. Divorce was a divine concession to the hardness of heart, not an expression of God's heart for marriage. Jesus bases his teaching on God's original purpose for marriage, not the possibility of human failure. He only allows for divorce in the case of sexual immorality. The word he uses for sexual immorality is porneia. Porneia, it's a catch-all term for any form of sexual activity outside of marriage. But in this context of Matthew 5, it refers to a married person having sexual relations with someone other than his or her spouse. Jesus permits divorce on the ground of sexual immorality in order to protect the spouse who has been betrayed. A certificate of divorce in the ancient world gave a woman the right to remarry. It was a protection to the wife. Most likely, she would need to remarry to secure her livelihood. When divorce was obtained for this reason, it was not morally wrong because adultery severed the marriage union. But when a man divorced his wife on some other grounds, other than sexual immorality, he made his wife commit adultery. In the first century, some female Jewish divorcees would have gone back to live with their parents in shame. But many would have sought to remarry. This is the situation Jesus is addressing. These second marriages would begin with adultery from the perspective of the divorcee and the one marrying her because the divorce of the first marriage would have been considered invalid in the eyes of God. Note that the blame is placed on the husband who makes his wife commit adultery. Jesus argues against the permissive Jewish interpretation of divorce and remarriage. He does not say that one can never divorce and remarry, but rather argues for a commitment to the original purpose of marriage, for its permanence and sacredness. So as a follower of his beautiful way, be consumed with God's enduring purpose for marriage rather than seduced by momentary opportunities for pleasure. Marriage is a lifelong journey of becoming one. When considering marriage, we need to resist the human tendency to accommodate and make things easy. The making things easy is actually an illusion because separation and divorce rarely make things easy. Perhaps you want to revisit our church position paper on divorce and remarriage. It's available on our website. 
And let's remember that marital unfaithfulness does not require divorce. Divorce is not mandatory. Forgiveness and reconciliation are always the goal of any rupture in relationship. Our staff team recently heard the testimony of Lisa Turkhurst, the founder of Proverbs 31 Ministries. After 25 years of marriage, she discovered that her husband had been unfaithful. Her world was shattered. Lisa sought counsel and decided to take the path of forgiveness. The restoration of their marriage took two and a half years. Forgiveness and reconciliation in the, in the case of marital unfaithfulness is always a journey. Lisa found Jesus to be present with her on the journey. She chose to live his way. Jesus calls us to live the Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit, to mourn our sinfulness, to be meek, to be merciful, and pure in heart. Where there are differences, we work for restoration. We pursue reconciliation before we talk about divorce. When I married Judy, I received some wise counsel from a grandfather. Before marriage, he said, you ask yourself if your girlfriend or fiancé is the right one. But after the wedding day, you make her the right one. More importantly, you make yourself the right one for her. The goal is to find ways to make your marriage thrive, not to find ways to escape. When we marry, we make promises. And so Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37 are also very important. Matthew 5, 33. Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by by the earth, for it is, is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In view here are the third and the ninth commandments, namely, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and a number of other Old Testament texts. They prohibited irreverent oaths, light use of the Lord's name, and broken vows. A vow made in God's name was binding. Over time, however, the weight of one's oath was determined by how closely the promise was to Yahweh's name. So people began to swear by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem. For some strange reason, swearing by Jerusalem was not as weighty as swearing toward Jerusalem. Who knows why? The religious leaders were looking for loopholes. And this matter became the subject of much fruitless debate and discussion. They had missed the intent of the law. In the English language, we experience something similar. When we want to use bad language, but do not want to invoke the names of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, we say things like, gosh, geez, and holy cow, as if not using the real words is somehow better even though the heart attitude is the same. Hypocrisy did not die with the Pharisees. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, I quote, 
Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And then in verse 21, whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus renders the whole debate in relation to swearing by heaven or earth or anything for that matter to be meaningless. From Jesus' perspective, every oath is implicitly in God's name. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, even the hairs of the head are all under God's ownership. We cannot avoid some reference to God no matter what we say. Everything is under his domain. In Jesus' day, these oaths, rather than encouraging simple truthfulness, were becoming a a mechanism for clever lies. Jesus highlights that the direction and intent of the Hebrew scriptures, that is, the fundamental importance of truthfulness, was paramount. God is faithful to his word. He keeps his promises. Those who hunger and thirst after his righteousness will speak the truth. Oaths made in God's name to undergird one's words will become unnecessary if men and women keep their word. Their yes is yes and their no is no. Any attempt to deceive is either from the evil in our hearts or the evil one himself, the father of lies. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Connecting this paragraph about truthfulness to the previous two, we can say that our words of commitment to our spouses, friends, and families should be weighty because of who God is and who we are. God is truthful, so we are to be truthful. God is faithful in relationship, so we are to be faithful. God can be trusted, so we are to be trustworthy. If you have watched the, the, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, you will have heard the founders of Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Google expressing their concerns in relation to the world that social media has created. We live in a time where people no longer know what is true and what is not true. In this world, everything is uncertain and tenuous. As followers of the beautiful way of Jesus, in this world where many have no notion of the truth, we can be truthful and live by the truth. In a world that does not understand faithfulness, we can be faithful and be people of faith. In a world that does not trust God or anyone, we can trust God and be trustworthy. This is what it means to be salt and light in our day. As I bring this message to a close, all of us should acknowledge that we have fallen short. Remember, we are not on the way of religion, of trying to work for our salvation. Jesus invites us to acknowledge our spiritual need and turn to him. Each day we have the joy of submitting our hearts and minds to the work of the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Although the beautiful way of Jesus can be challenging, 
the grace of God is more than sufficient to free us from our sinful patterns so that we might be who we are created to be. The Spirit of God is present to enable us to walk in the fullness of life in God. Forgiveness, cleansing, healing are available to all of us. Jesus invites us to wholeness, to life, to full satisfaction in Him. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you again that you are so exceedingly gracious toward us. And Jesus, we thank you again for giving your life for us, paying the debt that we could never pay, taking all of our sin upon yourself, including the sins of the heart, including physical acts of sinfulness. Thank you, Jesus. May we walk in the freedom that you bought for us. May we learn to discipline our eyes. May we learn to feed our hearts and minds with things that truly bring you honor and honor others. Thank you that you're present to transform us into your likeness, Jesus. We depend on the work of your Holy Spirit and we ask for that ongoing work, that we would be pure in heart so that we might see you in the world around us, see you in the persons that we meet every day. Father, I pray for those of us who are married, may we remain faithful and work to to walk in oneness with our spouses. I pray for those who are single, Lord, that they would find their satisfaction, their life in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you're present to work in each one of our lives, no matter where we are on the journey. And Lord, when we see people around us who are struggling, may we extend grace, God. May we be gracious. May we pray for them, love them, walk with them. Lord, teach us to support one another on this journey where we all find ourselves to some degree, Lord, broken and in need. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be authentic, transparent, real, and allow you to do your work in our individual lives, in our marriages, in our families. Thank you, Jesus, that you're present to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Here's some questions for your reflection. God bless.